Writers' Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and with me is my co-host and mother, Caroline Kelborn. Good morning, Mom. Good morning. Another nice day. It's uh, We're recording this in June 2023. Hard to tell when you might be listening to it, but it's a beautiful summer day in Iowa today. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So, Caroline, would you like to share who we'll be talking with today? Today we're going to be talking uh, with <clears throat> Logan Steiner, who has written a book, uh, After Anne, and um, it's a novel of Lucy Maud Montgomery's life. And Logan is a litigator and a specialist at writing briefs for a boutique law firm. She graduated summa cum laude from Homana College and cum laude from Harvard Law School. She lives in Denver with her husband and daughter, and After Anne is her first novel. So we're very happy to have her on the show and looking forward to finding out how she did this because it's quite a book, quite a book. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Writer's Voices, Logan. Thank you so much for having me on, Monica and Caroline. I'm so happy to be here. So my uh, grandson's name is Logan. Logan is normally, in this country, at least a boy's name. I'm just wondering how you ended up with the name Logan. It is <laughs> normally a boy's name, and uh, it was a last name. So it was uh, my grandmother's maiden name, um, tracing back to Iowa, my Iowa roots that I have on both sides of my family. So my grandma grew up in small town, Mobile, Iowa if you're familiar, right outside of Sioux City. Okay, that's um, up north. Yep. It is. And yeah. she, um, you know, her, her last name was Logan, so her maiden name was Logan. And my mom just loved it as a name. At that time, it wasn't nearly the popular boy's name that it is now. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. she named me, <laughs> thinking that it would be this very unusual name and she'd always loved the idea of, of giving her children, you know, less less typical names. Um and now I think it's, you know, one of the top twenty names for boys. So yes, yes. Just, I kind of <laughs> like that it throws people off. They're not sure what to expect when they hear it. That is true. That is true. Now your other side of the family's from southern Iowa, I believe. Yes, that is right. And what where in southern Iowa? So Marshall well I guess Central, Central, okay, yeah, Marshalltown, Marshalltown area. Yeah, that's not too far from where Caroline grew up. Oh, is that right? True. Yeah, True. yeah. Newton, Newton, she, Newton, Iowa. She grew up in Newton, Iowa, and she is now in Mount Pleasant, and I'm in Fairfield right now. So we're, um, and you're in Colorado, correct? I am in Colorado, but I, in a few days, will be making the drive out to Lake Okoboji with my. Oh. Daughter and husband, we have made that trip from Colorado you know, most years growing up, and so my whole extended family goes, and it'll be my first time taking my daughter. So I'm really excited, and uh, such a fondness for Iowa, um, visiting my my grandma there, uh, and uh, that's actually where I first read Anne of Green Gables is is in Iowa with my grandma. Well, that's. You know, Anne of Green Gables is also very much about where it's set, isn't it? It's a it's it a is. Prince Edward Island. So tell us a little bit about how you 
became so interested in Anne of Green Gables and Prince Edward Island that you would spend, I imagine it was years, researching and writing this book. Yes. Oh, it is such a book of place. And, um, you know, the setting is so much a part of the book. And I felt really drawn to that setting from first reading, you know, reading all of Ellen Montgomery's work, and then also watching that fantastic CBC series with uh, Megan followed many, many times with my grandma, um, which is set in Prince Edward Island. And I just had such that, you know, real childhood nostalgia um, around my experience of reading and watching Anne um, with my grandma, who I was very, very close to, and just felt felt this relationship to the character. Um, so that, you know, I think was the first piece I I had such a fondness and connection and and Anne was such a big part of my childhood dreams to write uh, myself and to follow creative dreams. Um, but then in terms of why I take on this, you know, multi-year uh, <laughs> project kind of out of that sentiment. So I am somebody I've wanted to write since I was really young. Um, and I also have always been um, very scared about putting my work out into the world. Um, I'm a, a sensitive sort, similar to Anne in that way, very similar to Maud, her creator in that way. Um, I should say Ellen Montgomery went by Maud. That, I think, to me, learning the stories of... Um, of other writers has been the best way for me to feel less alone. I'm just always really drawn to learn about my favorite authors. So I, you know, not only appreciate their books, but I really want to know kind of the story behind the story and everything that they faced along the way that they went through and persevered through to create the, the books that I love the most. And so, you know, I, I learned about the story of Maud kind of sitting in bed late one night and it immediately drew me in um, and I felt really compelled to learn more, you know, that she created the character she had and her life ended in this, in this really tragic way that hadn't been revealed for a number of generations. That was just such, such a point of interest to me. And then learning that she had these journals, uh, which are, which were so fascinating. I was, I was really drawn into learn more and um, to write, to have my first book be kind of the story of somebody with a real creative spirit uh, whose work had inspired me. Now, so we're talking about Lucy Maud Montgomery. Mac, what was, and then her married name was McDonald. McDonald. But she, and she published as Lucy Maud Montgomery. Yeah. She did. Yeah. And um, she was the author of Anne of, the whole series of Anne of Green Gables. How many books are in that series? That series, oh, I would have to double check the exact number. I think it's around eight. And um, then what other things did she write and publish? So she wrote um, the Emily of New Moon series, uh, which is a fantastic series as well. Um, Maud said that she related to Emily as a heroine actually even more than Anne. Um, and then she wrote a number of one-off books. So she wrote 20 novels in total and 
many, many short stories and poems were published in her lifetime too. She was quite prolific. Um, but one that I would highly recommend that I really love is The Story Girl, which is a book that she published. It's a one-off that was published um, in the middle of her writing of the Anne series. Mm. Now, in your book, After Anne, um, Luce or Maud seems to come to resent having to do all these sequels for Anne. Um, is that, you know, where did you get that or how did you learn that? Is it, is it factual and did she express that and, and did her readers sort of, how did they take that? So she, that is factual. Um, and it is from her journals, um, as well as documented in, um, a fabulous biography, um, by Mary Henley Rubio called Lucy Maud Montgomery, the gift of wings. Um, and, so it is factual, but as as far as I know, it wasn't made public in her lifetime. Um, so she wasn't out you know, <laughs> with her readers. She didn't say, oh, I wasn't writing these sequels in a public way. Uh, but she definitely had those feelings, and they are what they're well documented in her own account um, and in what she told others during her lifetime. And I just – I found that to be such a fascinating – idea. You know, we think of the dream of becoming a best-selling author, and in her case, this famous public figure, not only best-selling in Canada, but across the world, and so beloved. And I was so interested in this book and kind of the what comes after the dream, and, you know, what are uh, the kind of difficulties. We all we all imagine kind of having this dream come true moment, and for Maude, I think the publication of Anne and its success had to completely surpass her wildest expectations. Uh, but then that came with, you know, this kind of all these things that you don't really, we don't really think about when we're thinking about dreams. So, you know, she had this readership then that was demanding more of the same. Um, she had, uh, you know, a marriage and, you know, kind of without giving too much away, but I think she felt a real pressure to continue to make money um, increasingly in her life and to provide for her family. And that meant kind of satisfying the demands of the readership. And she wrote about, you know, this book that she had always wanted to write kind of the, a, a real full story of an adult person's life. Um, and I would say in some ways her journals, which have been published are that, uh, but she never kind of got out of the, um, you know, the same vein of, of writing many, many sequels and kind of writing in the same and in similar voices throughout her fiction. Now, with Anne of Green Gables, it's about a young girl, an orphan, who um, goes to Prince Edward Island. And um, how old is Anne when she first is introduced? She's 11. She's 11. And over the course of the books, how old does she become? So she gets to middle age throughout the course of the books. And So that's yeah. one thing that I find kind of interesting because nowadays it seems like you can have series where the kids stay kids for a really, really long time. They don't age. Do you know why? Maud chose to age her along with kind of along as she grew older that she aged Anne. 
You know, she didn't write about that um, in particular. I do think, I mean, she did talk about the difficulty of writing characters in middle age. And I think she had the most fun with characters. This is in the historic, you know, in, in the documented record when they were an older age and younger age. Um, I think, you know, she found middle age um, just less interesting to write about and harder to write about. And I, I do think, you know, in writing about Maud's own middle age, it's it's a kind of hard piece of life to capture and, and keep captivating. I think there's so much more freedom of expression that can come with older age and younger age. And I think Maud had a lot of fun with characters in those ages because of that in terms of why, you know, she aged Anne. I'm sure there, you know, I would guess, you know, the readership would have wanted to learn what happens. And of course, there's this kind of famous love interest between Anne and Gilbert. And so what comes of that, um, you know, would have been of interest to readers. And I do think she always had a real sense of the readership in mind and what the readership would want to know. Because I kind of think of it like Little House on the Prairie, which it seems to me that those books didn't go into into Laura's middle age, you know, and uh, so it's 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 different. Yeah, yeah. I think that's right. That's yeah. right from my memory. And you can dissect youth into, you know, many books. Right. And you chose not to do that. So, yeah. you know, she had aged Anne a number of years just with Anne of Green Gables. So I think maybe continuing along in that pacing was yeah. what she had in mind. Yeah. So how much did you, before you like started researching this, how much did you know about the author's life? Very little, just, you know, what I could read from online sources and, I got so interested in just reading that kind of, you know, that preliminary information. Um, I think back in the day, you know, when I read the books for the first time, um, I learned a little bit and then I reread them and, you know, learned a little bit more each time. But it was really, um, you know, when I decided to sit down and, and take on the research for this book that I delved in deep. Now, Caroline, these books would have been around during your childhood, too, the Anne of Green Gables. Uh, Do you remember well, I, that? Well, I, I remember seeing, I think it was on PBS, <clears throat> the series on PBS, but um, I, don't, I, I don't know as I read them. I, I don't, I, <laughs> at my age, I can't remember everything, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even, okay, so her first book was published in what, around 19... 19- something like that yeah it was uh, 1908 1908 so they would have even been around when Caroline when your mother was a little girl mm, yeah I wonder I wonder if she ever ran across ran across them or read them that's like it's it's so fascinating that what it, what do you think Logan it is about this character that has you know, that people today are still reading these books that were written well over a hundred years ago. I know the the staying power of Anne is something I'm so interested in and I have tried to unpack what it is, you know, I can only say for me, but I think, you know, 
I'm somebody who I have to kind of coax myself into being more fully myself in the world, kind of more open and honest. I'm just naturally more of a, um, you know, the introvert, very sensitive to what other people think type. And I think Anne just has this uh, vibrant openness about her and really saying what she means um, and also being so open with her emotions. I mean, especially in her younger age, and I think she becomes much more tempered over time. You can kind of see uh, what Maude thought of growing older through how she had Anne grow older. But, um, you know, she just uh, is has this kind of endearing precociousness and uh, verbosity and is so much her herself in the world. And I think there's something in each of us that, uh, you know, wants to be more that way. And for me, even rereading her now, I feel like I can give myself more permission to just say what I mean and uh, be more open with my feelings. And I think that there's just something really beautiful in that kind of young character. And I also think Ma just had such a gift for relationships and so I think so much of what endeared readers to her um to the Anne character were her relationships with this older couple that she came to live with Matthew and Marilla mm-hmm. um and the way that she related to different people in a small town um you know each being their own uh kind of character, character. <laughs> exactly I think that that's so much of the staying power as well yeah, that's the thing about small towns is we sure have our characters. <laughs> yes, um, and they're so well known, true. you know, around. And I think that that's so much of, of the appeal of, of Anne as well, which is about that sense of place. Caroline, I'm getting a lot of background noise from you. Are you moving around or? No, no, I am sitting still. And and I, I hear when I talk to some people, they hear hear noises I, I it must be my phone oh i don't know dang. okay <laughs> yeah but you know I'm i want to, I want to add, oh that's good, oh, that, good. I, I hope the recording doesn't pick it up but because it might be a little hard for me to get it out it almost seemed like you were turning pages right next to the phone or something like that no <laughs> okay <laughs> but I, I i i do have a question for logan uh, uh you had so many sources available to you about uh, about uh this book about the about Anne and Green Gables and the and the author. How did how did you how did you find all those? Yes, so um, I really I started with kind of the the most intimate because I wanted to be in Maud's head. I wanted to write a fictionalized uh, account, and so as much as possible to get really close to Maud's own voice and thinking. So. Her journals mm-hmm. were such a resource, um, and they're voluminous. Um, and and so that was really uh, the place that I started reading those cover to cover with an idea of the kinds of parts of her life that I really felt most drawn to tell. That sort of after the giant success, after the dream comes true, part of her life. Um, you know, so taking notes um, as I went through her journals um, comprehensively and then back to her fiction. So, again, trying to get as close to Maude herself as I could. Um, and 
the biography that I mentioned um, had collected so much research. Um, the biographer is mm-hmm. also the editor of her journals and a lifelong mod scholar. And so that was such a great resource. And then, you know, once I had notes and um, kind of a catalog of those kind of closest to mod sources, I could then read sort of the literary critique and um other kinds of sources and pull just the relevant pieces as opposed to getting, you know, really bogged down in the details before I knew what I was wanting to write. Well, it's amazing that you were, you know, able to use all these resources and take take things from each one. I mean, that's that's the real, real thing that was impressive to me that you had so many so many details about about Maud's life and. That's amazing. <laughs> I really wanted it to be uh, a book true to Maud and a book true to Maud's life. And so there were many times along the way when I, um, you know, was in that question of, you know, trying to stay as close as possible to the historical record. You know, I would get some feedback from early readers about kind of sensationalizing or trying to, you know, weave things in that weren't really true to mod or true to the story. And, and that was something that was really important to me at the same time where I thought fiction could come into play with Maud's story. We're in these gaps in the places where we know she edited her journals, the, you know, um, her biographer mm-hmm. does a good job of talking about parts of her life that were not in her journals. And, um, you know, as a matter of fact, we can, we can only kind of make our best guesses as to what she would have taken out. Um, you know, as a matter of fiction, I could imagine into those spaces and do it in this kind of true to, to what I knew about Maud of a way, but that's where I really felt like fiction could add here. You're listening to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline, and our guest today is Logan Steiner, author of After Anne, which is a fictionalized account of the, of the life of Lucy Maud Montgomery, creator of Anne of Green Gables. So how did you make the decision of which time periods of her life to focus on? Yes, it was it was a hard decision because there was so much there and almost, you know, an abundance of wealth in terms of, you know, most subjects that you would write bio- uh, biographical fiction about don't have, you know, very lengthy journals accounting for most of their lives. So um, I I really had to pick and choose and, and I did that, um, you know, based on what kind of most drew me in. And I've always been really interested in that idea of the after, you know, the idea of kind of after um, a, a lifelong dream is realized, kind of what happens next. And so I knew I really wanted to tell, to look at um, what was life like after the, you know, the huge success of Anne of Green Gables and um to explore what what uh you know happened in Maud's life that led to this this tragic end um for this writer mm-hmm. of such life affirming characters um you know to take her own life um and you know to write just these poignant lines at the end of her life um i was so 
move to to really dive in and understand that question. Um, I ended up structuring the novel around um, this idea. We know that Maud burned papers at the end of her life. Um, and I was really fascinated with, you know, what would have been in those papers and as she was burning, you know, what would, what would a, a famous writer have chosen to excise from her life record? <laughs> and, and really just, I've always wanted to know, you know, what will really matter to me at the end of my life, what matters in the end. And um, so I um, landed after, you know, many edits and um, many iterations on a structure that really um, centers around Maud you know, burning papers at the end of the, her life and, and having scenes that are most significant to her replay um, that are related to those papers that she's burning. Um, but I can say that, you know, that structure was one that came in later iterations and uh, the birthday weekend scenes as well. Um, those were something that came um, along the way as uh, a wonderful suggestion from my editor at HarperCollins, uh, Tessa Woodward, to kind of interweave a uh, more uplifting uh, storyline throughout uh-huh. the book. And I um, I really enjoyed writing those scenes. You know, they have Maude at this kind of precipice of a really big decision that I think has a lot of, of resonance with what happens after. Um, and we're able to kind of go back and forth and feel her at this early, full of anticipation time in life. And then kind of later as her life moves along. Um, and so I ended up having a lot of, I, I took a lot of joy in writing those scenes, but they were also a later addition. That's interesting. So she was 33 for this birthday, correct? And, yes. and she was, um, engaged and she was about ready to publish or she after Anne had or uh, Anne of Green Gables had been accepted for publication so she had a lot to celebrate at that point yes so but but one thing that's kind of interesting is you know 33 was not a young woman for someone in 1907 or 8 or the birthday was what year was, yes, was this birthday 1907 and um so the fact that she was unmarried at that age and also that, you know, she was just starting, beginning her. Now, she was successful as a writer of serialized short stories that were mainly religious in tone or nature. It sounded like they were used in Sunday schools a lot. Can you tell us they a little were. bit about that? Yes. So she had, um, you know, had a good amount of success publishing short stories and, and poems prior to um, writing her first novel, which was Anne of Green Gables. And they were serialized for Sunday schools. They were by no means all religious in nature. I think that was a way that a lot of short stories, um, you know, by women in particular at that time, you know, to the extent that they were published at all, which was a rare thing were published. Um, and so Sunday school serials were what she called them. Um, but yes, so, you know, the birthday weekend scenes have her at a time in, you know, in that era where she was well past the time that 
most of her peers were married and and having children and facing this daunting prospect of what she called spinsterhood um you know i think that was the um there were there was so much attached to that term and um and she'd always she'd had this lifelong dream to write she'd been pursuing it with incredible you know admirable perseverance and she also had um you know she really wanted children um and had kind of gone through suitor after suitor and had some some real deep loves um a few that didn't that were in early drafts of the novel that didn't make it into the novel because of where um you know where it ended up focusing but you know she's at this point where it's kind of now or never in terms of marriage and children if she wants to do that or if she wants to focus kind of single-mindedly on her writing and i just think you know, even the consideration of that was so unusual uh, back in that day and, and shows what a kind of free thinker, um, interesting thinker she was. Now, you focus a lot on the relationship between Maud and her cousin. Do you pronounce her name Freed or Frida? Freed. Freed. And so is that straight out of her journals? And, um, you know, because Freed also seemed to be quite a free thinker. Yes, she was. She was. Um, and she was, you know, Mott's younger cousin. So nine years apart, um, they weren't exactly peers, but once Freed, um, you know, got to be old enough, they became really, really close. They are really, a an example of those kinds of kindred spirits where age doesn't matter so much. And she, was Maud's closest friend in life, um, and that's that's very much in her journals. Now, did did Maud have any siblings? No, in that way, she was uh, very similar to Anne. So her mom died when she was twenty one months old, um, and she was then raised by her mom's parents. Now, but were there some half siblings? Uh, so her father did remarry, yes, yes. and okay. um, he remarried, um, and so she had these younger um, children of her father. She spent a year with them and uh, his new wife, and that was a very, very unpleasant time for her. His new wife basically decided that she could employ her as a nanny for her young children and had uh, not a lot of care for Maude at all. And that was a really difficult year-long period before Maude went back to live with her maternal grandparents again. And did you, did she write about that in her journals? Did she write about her she own did. childhood? So she did. tell us a little bit more about the, um, about this editing process that, that Maude did on her journals. I found it really fascinating. Yes, it's so fascinating. It was endlessly fascinating to me. She made the decision. So she had been a keeper of journals since she was really young. She burned her first ever journal, um, rereading it. She decided it was too juvenile. And so she burned it, which I think just says a lot about her and the way that she thought. I mean, she was really just the the consummate editor, she she really wanted to control her own narrative. And I think that was true from very, very early on. I mean, she, I think that was, 
she was so driven to write um, in part out of that real desire to to control the narrative. And so for her own journals, you know, they were this place of refuge. She kept them um, regularly throughout life. She decided in middle life that she was going to take this, take on this recopying project of editing all of her, um, all of her journals and, um, you know, kind of recopying them in the, in the sound mind of middle age. And so she, you know, bought a set of blank books and, and took on, you know, recopying, uh, which I just think is such an interesting undertaking. You know, it's clear from the historical record that in doing that, there were some changes made. We don't have her original journals to compare, but there are things, there are sort of places where it's clear that, um, you know, certain things were uh, left out or she told a story in a way that seemed like she was really curating that story. And even in those recopied volumes, there's evidence that she razored out pages. And so, you know, took out things that she wasn't quite happy with the recopying of and rewrote them again. And I just find that to be such a fascinating thing. And so she, she goes back and, you know, recopies what she has already. And then in her subsequent years, after kind of undertaking this project, she starts to take journal notes on pieces of scrap paper. So she writes down kind of potential candidates for these now, you know, formal journal volumes on note pieces of note paper. And when she's ready, writes out the actual journal entries into those final volumes. Um, so on the one hand, they're such a refuge, um, as, as journals are for so many of us. They have been to me. But then on the other hand, you know, she's she's still writing them with the readership in mind. She has in mind that they'll be published after she dies. She ends up giving control over that to her youngest son. Um, but she's still writing, you know, I think in, in some ways um, just says so much about her that, you know, they, even though she was really, um, you know, keeping the readership in mind throughout her life and, and really wanted to keep those tight reins on what was going on the page. Throughout this book, or at least in the early part of the book, we, um, you have Anne's voice in Maud's head, um, and it's very clear because yeah. you put that in italics, which makes it, um, we can tell this isn't what Maud's, she's thinking what she thinks Anne would be thinking. Right. Yes. But throughout her life, she kind of has the reader's voice in her head as well. She does. Yeah. She does. And that is, you know, I think just very true to her um you know she didn't sort of capitalize it in the way that I have in the book <laughs> but I think she really had the reader in mind um as she was writing and as she was writing those journals and some to some extent even as she lived you know she was conscious of people I mean she was famous she was a celebrity and people paid attention to her life and so it must have I wonder if that contributed to her struggles was the fact that, you know, she was kind of under a microscope. 
I think absolutely. It's such a story of the, you know, um, the many sides of fame. And I think, um, you know, what can be so hard about being a public figure as she really became, I mean, she was so beloved, particularly in Canada. I think it's something that, you know, most of us in, in the U.S. know Anne of Green Gables, but we don't have quite the level of knowledge and reverence for this author that I think has endured in Canada. I think she's, you know, the equivalent of the Mark Twain um, of Canada in terms of how she's still regarded. And really, I think that that just comes, you know, there's, there's so much that's wonderful about that kind of public attention and her book selling so well and being so beloved throughout her life. And I think also, um, you know, the, the level of self-consciousness that that would bring to an already very sensitive soul, um, is something that was, you know, I could, um, really try to put myself in her shoes and just imagine how, how much of a weight that would be, um, and how hard that would be. These journals, um, she, did she keep them daily, right? Every day in them? Is that, do you know if that would, she that didn't. Done. She didn't. She would have uh, months-long gaps. So she would write long journal entries, often summarizing several months and the happenings of several months at once. And so, um, you know, she would go into a good amount of detail in most of the entries. I mean, some were shorter than others, but she'd go out into a good amount of detail. But it was, it was a no, by no means sort of a, I'm just trying to make sense of what happened today. This was really, I'm, I'm trying to make sense of and tell a story about the last six months, the last three months of my life. Oh, okay. Okay. And I was wondering uh, how this happened, that the, the reality of her uh, suicide came to light because it was several years after her death, wasn't it? That, uh, it was. that was made public. It was. It was in 2008, actually, that her granddaughter kind of came out with the facts um, that the family had, um, you know, not revealed for for a long time and um, that, you know, suggested that her death was almost certainly a suicide. The the note that had been found by her bedside um, and, you know, um, other facts kind of from the medical records, I think, um, you know, I think that Maud, just, you know, by the fact that she didn't, those last three years were really missing from her journals. I think she really had a desire, um, probably for that last piece of her life to um, remain private for some time. And so I think the family, you know, it, it makes sense to sort of honor um, that intention for a while, but yes, this was something that, um, that didn't come out about, about Ellen Montgomery for a while. You're listening to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline, and our guest today is Logan Steiner, author of After Anne. Logan, would you like to read a little bit from After Anne? I would love to. Great. So, this is a scene from uh, one of the birthday weekends uh, sets of chapters. And this is uh, early on um, a scene where uh, Maud has just taken a, a long walk 
and is sorting through um, some of the conundrum that she's facing at this at this particular time. So this is pretty early in the book. On the way back to the house, Maud made the single stop she had planned. How different it was from one of the usual errands she was tasked with on her walk, picking up a pound of flour from the town store, gathering a dozen eggs from a neighbor's chicken coop, dropping off a letter for a neighbor too ill to pick it up from the desk where she and her grandmother sorted mail for the town. As she approached the tall front door of the white shingled two-story flanked by orchards where she had lived for the better part of her life, the cake that she had purchased sat on a covered plate in Maud's hands and smelled just as decadent as she had hoped. A perfect mix of savory and sweet with dark chocolate cake and cream cheese icing. It had been a marvelous idea buying a cake baked by a neighbor for her birthday. It had been Anne's idea, actually, in the way that persistent little character was always whispering in Maud's ear these days. Anne had appeared to Maud fully formed from the start, real as the ink under Maud's fingernails. After spending a solid year in Anne's company as she wrote the first manuscript, Maud was now plotting out a sequel. As hard as Maud was working to grow Anne up, she kept hearing the voice of Anne's younger self. The door to Maud's imagination reopened a crack, and 11-year-old orphaned Anne moved herself right back in, worn out carpet bag in tow, with enthusiasms and whims unchecked. Once Anne had started up talking in Maud's mind, Maud had a hard time not hearing what Anne would have to say on a subject. Included among this chatter had been several distinct opinions about the celebration of Maud's birthday. You must have exactly the cake you would have imagined for yourself in your wildest dreams. And don't dare bake it yourself. Cakes do have a terrible habit of turning out badly when you most want them to be good. It's your 33rd birthday, after all, the same number twice, which makes it doubly special. A birthday must never feel the same as any ordinary day of the year. Oh, and you must throw yourself a party, too, one that feels like an exclamation point at the end of a stirring sentence. There's no use waiting for someone else to plan a party the way you'd, you don't wish it to be. No, you must conjure up precisely the party you would like and make it so. Anne was difficult to argue with, which had been half the fun in writing her, and half the trouble with having her voice chirp away in Maud's mind. Cake still in hand, Maud walked straight to the kitchen, as she always did, quick on her feet. Only now that she had left the outdoors did her arms register how tired they were from holding several pounds of cake still and upright. Down went both cake and coat onto the old kitchen table. Maud looked around at the space, neat as always, with the dishes put away, the heirloom paintings fastened in their places, and the town's mail sorted by surname into the cubbies in the old wooden post office desk that sat against one wall, its raised cover meaning that her grandmother had not quite finished sorting that day's allotment. The white trim on every window was fresh and recently dusted. People often called it a pretty house or a proper one, but its dearness to Maud went far beyond pretty or proper. I'll get to my jacket in a bit, Maud called out to the listening ears around the corner. A year ago, the thought of her grandmother seeing Maud's jacket on the table, let alone the purchased cake, would have made Maud tense and in a hurry to put things away. 
but a recent change in her grandmother had made for greater ease in Maud's shoulders. Or was it Maud who had changed? The thought came to her as insights often did, gone with her next exhale unless she paid it mind. Her grandmother emerged then from the hallway, shaking her head and hiding her smile. Long, thin arms jutted out from where her grandmother's hands fixed themselves to her hips, with her graying hair pulled in a tight bun and only slight, slightly softened by a layer of bangs. You've become a good deal less polite lately. Perhaps you thought I didn't notice, her grandmother said, tilting one cheek up in a way that had become a recent habit. And you've become less ornery, Maud said, rising on her tiptoes to give her grandmother's cheek a quick kiss. It's hard to say who's to blame. It's a good thing we'll be apart for a few days, I say, with you seeming to forget all your manners over such an ordinary thing as a birthday. Maud watched her grandmother's nose lead her eyes in the direction of the cake on the table. I cannot say I'll be cured when you return, Maud said, but I'll do, you my, I'll do my best to save you some cake. Where in the world has this come from? I commissioned it. Commissioned? What a thing to say, let alone do, her grandmother paused. But I suppose it is your money. The grandmother turned away from the cake then and started busying herself at the post office desk. Maud smiled. It is, and plenty of it besides saved up. I wouldn't expect anything less, Chet. Her grandmother halted. Her tongue caught on her usual manner of addressing Maud. Age five or thirty, it had been the same. Child this, child that. But lately, her grandmother had been using the word less often. Could it be that Maud had heard the last of it? Maud thought back to a childhood afternoon spent crying under the covers in her upstairs gable bedroom. Gulping in insufficient air between sobs, she prayed for the day when she'd be able to live with her father instead of two old curmudgeons who told her to rush, hush, and run along every time they had interesting company. That day, she made up her mind that when she grew up, she would talk to every child like an adult. At that age, there wasn't a thing worse than being treated as a child who couldn't be told real things. All the more so, she had since learned, when she wasn't a child at all. Her grandmother took a breath and started again. You know that it may make things difficult in your marriage, Maud. It can be hard on a man to have a wife with money saved up. It can give her too much independence for a man's comfort. Her grandmother stood still and waited until Maud's eyes met hers. Her words had been addressed to Maud as an adult, at least, but they stirred a pool of hurt and anger, making it ripple. How swiftly her grandmother could turn a blessing into a curse. And then, predictably, Amen. I don't think a wife's money would trouble in the slightest a man who was truly worthy. He would love his wife doubly for it if there was anything romantic about him, especially money earned by her own hand. Maud, Anne's peppery words coated the hurt and made Maud remember herself. You're assuming I get married anytime soon. Maud kept her tone light, knowing her words would make her grandmother squirm. Maud had broken off engagements before. Many of her friends had done so, especially in the early years, right out of school. She thought this time was different, but she knew her grandmother had her doubts. You most certainly will if I have any say, which I suppose I don't, but I've been saving that topic for supper time tonight. I'd like to make sure there's time for it before I leave. You've been saving up a discussion about my marriage? I have. Well, I'm eager to be enlightened, Maud smiled and I'm eager to be situated for the weekend at Park Corner, where other family members are sure to address me in a proper tone. 
her grandmother turned back to the male with only a hint of humor. Maud shook her head, fighting back a laugh. At times like these, Maud could see the fight in her grandmother's hands and shoulders, torn between embracing her recent loosening and returning to the perpetual clutch she had used to raise Maud into the outwardly proper woman she was today. Maud put her jacket away, then returned to the kitchen to put the cake away in the pantry. Maud had started writing the ingredients for supper when her grandmother began speaking again, her back still turned to Maud. Don't get me wrong, her grandmother said. I wish I had had money of my own in my marriage. I'll tell you what, I wished that many a time. Thank you, Logan. That was Logan Steiner reading from After Anne. I just wanted to touch briefly on um, the issue of uh, drug addiction, because that played a big part in Anne's life, not... um, you know, because of her husband and herself. Do you want to talk about that a little bit and and um, how readers today might might see similarities to things that are happening today? Yes, um, I think that that is one of one of the themes in the book that really in the parts of Maud's life that I feel like has so much to say to us today. Um, mm-hmm. you know, the, uh, barbiturates and bromides were readily prescribed back then, um, with sort of more rudimentary understandings of mental health and, and a lack of understanding by doctors of the true kind of poisonous effect that those drugs could have, um, in large doses, especially and their addictive properties. And I just think that there are real echoes to the, modern day opioid crisis and how, um, mm-hmm. you know, so many people are suffering in silence and that there's, um, you know, a lot of the kind of lack of information and things happening, um, you know, really privately. And I think that um, Maud's struggle and her husband's struggle um, are ones that, that really, um, you know, I think have so much to say to the reader now. And Maud's husband was a preacher. Yes, he was a, he was a minister. He was a minister. Presbyterian. Yes. Okay. And um, how did that impact Anne's life, you know, being a minister's wife? It's... Uh, well, she, at one point, Maud compared it to, or likened it to a respectable form of slavery. So mm-hmm. uh, there is that, I think, yeah. you know, she she knew going in, you know, every, everybody uh, was very kind of familiar with the, um, you know, the prominent role that ministers played um, in, you know, small town Canada at the time and all of the obligations that would come with the, being the, wife of a minister, um, in particular, you know, duties to the congregation, so many, um, different, uh, you know, outreach that she would need to do every week, charitable organizations that she needed to be part of, um, you know, um, different organizations that all, I think, ended up being this competing demand for her time. She was really good at all of that. And I think excelled at all of it, but she was also, wanting to write throughout her life and she was raising children. And I think that, um, you know, there was this, this large burden that came and that was a big part of what she was struggling with, whether, whether to take on or not, um, with being a minister's wife. I would think that as 
it, you know, it's unusual for a woman to have her own career at that time in our country. And um, for someone who was as successful in the in as a writer as she was, that being a minister's wife would have been the hardest. I mean, almost any other, anyone else that she'd, you know, marry a banker or something, right. you know, right. <laughs> a farmer yeah. even might have been a little easier than the, being the minister's wife would be the most difficult. And I think that's yeah. right. <laughs> she, she chose, you know, uh, quite an uphill battle for herself and, and knew it going in. I mean, it also, you know, put her in a place of kind of prominence and respectability within, um, you know, within society that I think was attractive to her, you know, the minister and the minister's wife earned a lot of respect, but yes. And then to, you know, become tremendously more successful than her husband too. The book really explores that theme. I mean, just thinking about how rare that would have been at the time, it's, oh, it's yeah. still relatively yeah. rare, but back then, you know, not only to out earn him, but to just have, you know, immensely out earn him and be this public figure. I think the the deep threat um, that that had. Um, Although you make it, is something it you make it clear in the book that his mental illness struggles with mental illness long predated that. That is true. Yeah. Yes. But it it might have been hard in that day and age to have found a husband who could deal with with all of that. I think that's probably right. In a healthy way. (laughs) So I wonder what, you know, if she had lived today, how different her life might have ended. I know. I know. It's really, I mean, her, her story. um, I, I wrote this book with such respect and, and deep admiration for Matt. I think it's made me really, appreciate you know modern norms around divorce um and you know divorce really wasn't seen as an option in that day um mm-hmm. you know and really the um the greater openness that we have where spinsterhood isn't this stigmatized type of life and type of identity i think it would have been so interesting um to see how her life would have been different today yeah for sure for sure so yeah. Logan, let me ask you, this you were a first-time writer. How did you find your publisher for this book? It was uh, quite a process. So um, this book was uh, a number of years. It's been eight years in the making from the start of the research to now having it come out. And um, it was really, it was a, a lot about perseverance. Um, there are also points where I really kind of trusted my gut and intuition along the way. And I think there were, there were many times when I, um, was considering giving up on this, this story and kind of starting MX novel. And I kept being pulled back each time I would take a, a break away and go back into the manuscripts, um, and get feed or get feedback. I would, uh, go back in and take so much more, you know, get to kind of a deeper understanding of Maud and take so much more out of the story that I could then somehow, it's like I needed to um, learn those lessons for myself in the moment. Uh, But um, so it was, uh, you know, uh, some years to get to um, 
finding my agent, Abby Saul, um, and we ended up going to Tessa Woodward at Morrow, who's the editor of this book, um, at first, you know, right away with an exclusive, um, thinking that she would be a wonderful fit. And she said no. Uh, and, so, <laughs> and so that was, you know, I, there, yeah, many, you know, it's, I know a common story for so uh, many writers, but there's been a lot of, you know, overcoming rejection and the soul searching along the way in this book story. Um, and then we continued to shop the book and Tessa came back to us and said, you know, I can't get this book out of my mind. Can we have a conversation? And out of that conversation, the birthday weekend scenes were born, as I, as I said, and it, the idea that she had wasn't so specific. It was, you know, can we interweave um, kind of a more hopeful and more discreet timeline storyline through this book? And as I talked about it with her, I got so excited about the idea and um, ended up reworking the manuscript based on uh, that feedback and then went back to Tessa and it was accepted and um, just so, so meaningful after um, all of that time and, um, and thought, and I just still remember it was one of the best days of my life. My daughter had just been born. So it was a few weeks after. Wow. (laughs) And I had always had this idea of, I, I want to write and get a novel published before having a baby because otherwise I may never do it. You know, I, I really, I've always wanted to be a writer, but I thought if I didn't get my foot in the door before having, um, having a child, that I wouldn't do it. And of course it took, you know, kind of having her <laughs> and thinking that it may never happen. And then it did, which I think is, has been such a good life lesson for me. Well, congratulations, Logan, and thank you so much for being with us today here on Writer's Voices. We're out of time, but we've been talking about After Anne, the story of Lucy Maud Montgomery, a fictionalized account of her life. And Caroline, do you have some final words for us today? Well, there were several quotes from the book, but this one I thought was good. Um, How different life would be if one looked in the mirror the way one felt inside. <laughs> especially when, when we were reading that last night, I said, especially at our age. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> well, yeah. thank you again, Logan. It's been wonderful to be with you both. Thanks so much for having me. And see you all next week on Writer's Voices. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye.